Well, thank you, uh, Scott, again, for the opportunity to preach. And before we get started, I just want to say uh, that um, it has been such a blessing to be a part of this church. You know, being in the, in the Marines, being in the military, I've moved constantly more times than I can count. This is the longest I've been in any one spot uh, for the past four years. And I always say that the two hardest things about moving are in order, are finding a good church and finding a good barber. Um, and <laughs> it took me two years to find a good barber here, uh, but it only took us three months to find a good church. And Michelle and I prayed uh, diligently and deliberately when we moved here that we would find a church and a body of believers that we could be a part of that would not only give us a chance to grow, but a chance to serve. Uh, and God answered that prayer more than we ever expected or hoped he would. Uh, not just as an opportunity that Michelle and I have had uh, to be a part of different ministries here, but to be a, a part of a church led by men who are faithful to God's word and to be a part of a body of believers who honor God's word. And we truly love living in New Bern, and it is a beautiful place and the weather's great, but the reason why, and I can speak for Michelle and I, is because of this church. Um, and so I hope uh, and pray that in 10 months we'll be coming right back here, uh, and that, I hope that you would pray for that as well. So thank you, Scott. Uh, for another opportunity uh, to preach. So tonight, uh, we're going to be looking through a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, open them to Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me as I start reading in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be, not be pruned or hoed or briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There's a metaphor that many of you are probably familiar with, and it has to do with taking a frog and putting it in a pot of water. Now, as the story goes, that if you take a frog and you drop it in a pot of boiling water, the frog will immediately jump out to save its life. But if you take that same frog and put it in a pot of lukewarm water and slowly raise the temperature to boiling, the frog will be unaware of its changing environment and will slowly boil to death. This example has been used widely in our culture to describe the threats of slow, gradual changes that can result in disastrous consequences over time. And I think it's a great and really fantastic example of that very thing. But what I was actually interested to find was that scientifically it's not true. Uh, if you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will die. And if you put a frog in a pot of water that's lukewarm and raise the temperature, it will probably jump out before it starts boiling. 
And no, before you're thinking, I didn't figure that out by grabbing one of the frogs out of the front yard and dropping it in a pot of water. Uh, Michelle would not have approved of that, and it probably would have been great because the frog would have been hopping through the house. But, but it is true. It is true. Uh, and actually, a scientist tried to replicate this to see if it was actually true, and they found that just exactly what I explained would happen. If you drop a frog in boiling water, it will die, and if you leave it in a pot, it will jump out before the, the water starts boiling. But here's the important thing. The principle is true. Rapid changes are something we can all easily see, but the slow creeping changes, those are the dangerous ones. Those are the threatening ones. And moreover, this is actually still true and observable in nature. Think about carbon monoxide. If the carbon monoxide built up in a space where you were and you had no tools or instruments to actually observe that, you would slowly fall asleep and die. This actually happened in Apollo 13, if you're familiar with that mission where the, the space capsule was damaged, carbon monoxide was building up, and the only way they knew about it was because they had a little instrument that was telling them, and they had to figure out a way to build a filter in order to clean the air so that they wouldn't die. But if you saw the source of that carbon monoxide poisoning, such as, say, a fire, you would probably immediately flee from that, that threat. And it's because when we see immediate danger, we're likely to react. We don't sit idly by when we see something deadly approaching. But it's the slow change, the small compromises that be, can be so subtle they are almost undetectable. Those are the dangerous ones, and they lead to bigger problems. That the slow changes that lead to one day you wake up and you say, how did we get here? How did this happen? You don't see it coming because... You're the frog in the pot, slowly boiling to death without even realizing it. And when you look at Judah in this passage, you might ask yourself, how did they get there? How did a nation that was set up for so much success, who started out so right, get to a place where they're being described as a worthless vineyard producing rotten grapes that was going to be destroyed? I mean, think back to when Solomon completed the temple, and he blessed the temple, and he blessed the people, and he prayed, and they had a ceremony, and at that moment, they were fulfilling what God had called them to do. They were doing what God had commissioned them to do. And how did they go from that moment over the centuries to this one? Well, I'll tell you how. Through slow change, accepting compromise, slowly yet consistently taking steps away from God. It started small, but little by little, they rejected God. They worshiped false idols. They even brought idols into the temple and ultimately forgot the law that was given to Moses. Now, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis explains this very danger and the type of path that these small compromises and these small omissions can lead to. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, Screwtape is a senior demon in this fictional book, and what he's doing is he's giving advice to his nephew, who is a junior demon, trying to tempt a British man and lead him away from God. And this is the advice he gives him. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you are separating the man from the enemy. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. And indeed, that's what happened to Israel. They began down a path without signs, without markings, and arrived in a place of judgment largely without realizing it. And so God sent Isaiah and other prophets to be those milestones, to be those signs, to be the prophet to pronounce his warnings and his judgment. 
Now, as we come to this passage in your Bibles, we're going to examine the reasons why Judah and this vineyard were destroyed. What it meant to Isaiah's audience when he said it, and how we can apply to it, apply it to us today. And let me be clear, while this passage is indeed about Judah and Israel, it's not about America. I do think there's a lot of parallels that can be applied to the country that we live in today. And first, I want us to understand that the central argument of this passage is it's a warning that apart from God, no matter how hard you try, you will only produce bad fruit, and that we have no excuse as Christians to not produce fruit for God's kingdom because God expects fruit from those he provides for. And God has perfectly provided for us through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the very evidence of our salvation is that we will produce good fruit, the fruits of the Spirit. And this passage makes it clear that God has graciously and perfectly provided for us in every conceivable respect. And thus, any unfruitfulness is fully deserving of God's punishment because it results exclusively from the rejection of God and the refusal to submit to his gracious will and provision. Now, to help us understand this, what I want to kind of do is just briefly go over what's happening historically here. So, Isaiah ministered during the time of four kings in, Israel, or in Judah. The first was Isaiah. Now, he was prosperous for 52 years, and he oversaw Judah becoming a big commercial power. However, he also messed up. He had spiritual failings. He tried to perform the role of priests. He actually burned incense on the altar. He wasn't supposed to do that. And so God punished him and gave him leprosy, and he died. And after that, his son Jotham took over as king. And like his, like his father, Jotham let, spiritual corrupt, let, let the spirituality of Judah continue to become corrupted. And meanwhile, in the background, Assyria and Babylon were growing into these regional powers. And after Jotham died, Ahaz took over as king. And at that moment, the northern kingdom of Israel, who was also about to face judgment, they made an alliance with Syria against Assyria, the other country who was growing in the region. And in response, Judah made an alliance with Assyria. And that resulted in two things. One, the destruction of Israel to the north. And two, the entrance of a foreign altar and a pagan idol into the temple. He actually brought in another altar and set it next to the actual altar in the temple. And then the last king during Isaiah's ministry was Hezekiah, and he actually became ill and, and repented, and God honored him, and he sorted to right the ship, so to speak. But, you know, through this very brief kind of survey, it shows us what's going on in Judah. We have a country that's depraved spiritually, altars and idols being introduced into their worship in their temple, and growing regional threats of Babylon and Assyria, and the pending judgment of the northern kingdom. And this is all because of a pattern, a pattern of unfaithfulness of Israel and Judah, that led them away from God. And what else was going on? Well, to Israel's audience, frankly, they knew a lot about grapes. That's why he talked about a vineyard. I mean, at this point in the 7th and the 8th century, grapes were the staple product of the Middle East. And so his audience would be intimately familiar with cultivating, preparing, and caring for vineyards. It's even possible that when Isaiah gave this message, it was during the grape harvest. So it's no accident that he used a vineyard as his example in this song. Now, that being said, to Isaiah's audience, being experts in grapes, it's clear that they would understand that this kind of harvest would be a complete and utter economic disaster, especially considering the amount of effort that the owner took to prepare for the land. And the image that Isaiah evokes in the first two verses here of, of the beloved removing rocks from the ground is a direct reference to the abundant amount of rocky soil in Israel. 
The construction of a watchtower demonstrates the great lengths that he went to. And so his audience understands the vineyard owner did this the right way. He spared no expense. He did everything properly, and he cared and nurtured for the land. And so Isaiah's playing on the agricultural farming experience of his audience, knowing that having heard this story, they would naturally agree that these sour grapes, they're not the result of the owner. They're the result of the vineyard. The owner did not make any mistakes. And another key piece to remember here is that when Isaiah wrote this, the northern kingdom of Israel already had been conquered by the Assyrians. And so that's important because this led probably the audience of Isaiah to have a false sense of security thinking that, oh, he must be talking about them. They're the sour grapes. They're the ones who are being judged for their unfaithfulness. So with that historical understanding kind of going on, I also want to talk about what's going on contextually here in the actual passage, the literary context. And what I mean is, how do we understand this, right? I mean, the books of prophecy, they can be a little intimidating at times. Like, how do we understand this? Is this an allegory? Is this a parable? Is this some kind of a metaphor? Is this just a song? Well, I think that if we examine this, and I have, that contextually, when we compare it to other parables in the Old Testament, the best way we can describe it is a judicial parable. And the reason why is that it's very, very specific. There's a lot of specificity in this passage. He has a very specific purpose, a specific situation, a specific lesson to give. And as Old Testament parables often do, there's a lot of legal issues here at stake regarding judgment. And think about it, when you compare this to the parable that the prophet Nathan brought to King David when he committed a sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, it's very much the same pattern where he presents a rhetorical situation that parallels the sin of the person he's delivering it to, enabling them to pronounce judgment unwittingly on themselves. Same thing that happened to David is what Isaiah is doing here. And so I think this understanding helps us to realize what the purpose of his message is. And what else? Well, at the outset, I talked about producing fruit, right? So what do I mean? What is that fruit that we're supposed to be producing? Well, I think we can define that in the Bible. John just said at the beginning, all Scripture is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. Well, the best teacher to explain the Bible is the Bible. And in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, Paul explains what the good fruits are and what the bad fruits are. And what Paul says is, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other and keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here it is. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So right away we can see that the fruits of the flesh, of the world, and of the Spirit are opposed to each other. I mean, this is what we talked about many Sundays ago when we're going through Romans, right? And we see that we must be led by the Spirit to do the works of the Spirit, namely good works. So what does that mean? That means that no matter how hard you try, no matter how many quote-unquote good things you do, apart from God, you are unable to produce the fruits of the Spirit. 
you will never produce the fruits of the Spirit apart from God. And think about this list, the list of the fruits of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, etc., etc. This is what describes the state of Israel and Judah at this time. They were theologically empty. They allowed idols into the temple. They had open enmity with other nations, including Israel to the north. These are not good fruits, not the fruits of God's kingdom. Why? Because they abandoned God. They were unfaithful. So now with that foundation complete, which I think kind of shapes what we're looking at, let's dive into the passage itself. Now at the outset, Isaiah is almost like any talented entertainer who grabs the attention of his audience with a song. Again, imagine the scene. It's a festival. They're celebrating the harvest, and he starts to sing a song for his beloved. Now, the first question we need to answer is, well, who is the beloved in this song? Well, we we know clearly from verse 7 that it's God, Yahweh. The next question is, who or what is the vineyard? Again, verse 7 tells us clearly that it is the house of Israel and Judah. That being said, it's important to remember that the audience doesn't know that they're the vineyard until the end of the song. They're being thrown off by the love song that he starts when he begins this judgment. And as Isaiah continues, he explains exactly what the owner, being God, has done to prepare his vineyard. And first, what does he do? He places it on a fertile hill, verse 1. That's what he does to prepare his vineyard. And this is a direct representation to God placing Israel in the promised land, a land that is blessed and filled with fertile soil. Next, as we talked about earlier, we see that God removed the stones from the soil. And agriculturally, this would be done to ensure the best growth and cultivation of those vines. And again, the the soil in Judah was naturally very, very rocky. And so for Judah, even beyond that, the rocks represent God's sovereignty in removing the enemies and the barriers in the promised land when they entered after their liberation from Egypt. I mean, remember, when, uh, when they entered the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan, they systematically defeated all of the enemies in the promised land, and God gave them the land. And after this, God did what? He planted the soil with choice vines in verse 2. Not just good vines, not just nice vines, but choice vines. And again, God is doing the very best. He's separating nothing, or he's sparing nothing. And this corresponds to God's divine selection of the Hebrews as his chosen people. And after that, God built a watchtower for protection. He built a wine vat. And so the watchtower was literally for a vineyard to be there for protection. But what does that represent? That represents Jerusalem the symbolic high point and the geographic high point for Jerusalem upon which the priests and the king would look down upon the nation of Judah and Israel in protection. And the wine vat, well, they would use that to crush the grapes and the juice would flow out. And that corresponds to the altar where the blood would pour out for the forgiveness of sins for his people. And so all of this, all of this work was done with the intent and the expectation that this vineyard would bear good fruit good grapes. I mean, this would be the natural expectation of anyone going to this amount of work. Yet tragically, after all of this effort and provision, the vineyard only produced wild grapes, which literally means stinkers in the Hebrew. Now, at this point, Isaiah's built this case. He's presented God, the owner, the beloved, as a faultless and perfect provider for the vineyard. Again, God went to great lengths to ensure that his vineyard had a perfect start in the perfect place, with the perfect vines, with the perfect protection. And Isaiah's audience, with their knowledge of how to build and take care of a vineyard, would know there's nothing more 
that the owner could do. And furthermore, because he went to such great lengths, the audience would surely have expected the land to produce if it was their own vineyard. And so having produced this in the first few verses, Isaiah presents a situation where the audience is spring-loaded to place the blame on the vineyard. I mean, this is the rhetorical question that he builds to and ultimately asks in the next verse. What more could have been done? Was this not the perfect situation, yet it still resulted in a failed harvest? Now, when Isaiah poses this rhetorical question, notice the change in verse 3 to the first person. He says, I. Now, here Isaiah employs this shift as a method to demonstrate that God is the owner of the vineyard, and it also is, identifies Isaiah as the spokesperson for God. He is God's mouthpiece, his prophet. This first-person shift also exhibits the intense bond that Isaiah has with God and that he identifies with God and his frustration and disappointment with the people of Judah. Now, having made this shift to the first person, Isaiah asks the question, you be the judge. What more could I have done? Why did this happen? And again, the audience knows nothing more God could have done. So Isaiah masterfully waits for the response from the audience. The guilt rests with the vineyard. Now, the owner, God, provided the perfect vineyard unless it should have produced fruit, but it didn't. There's no excuse. But again, what his audience doesn't understand is that they are the vineyard. Now, after he poses this rhetorical question, Isaiah then goes on and he moves to announce God's judgment. And this judgment includes removing the hedge and the wall and the tower and everything that he did to provide for the land ultimately will be laid waste to in verses 5 and 6. And Isaiah is clear in this part of the passage that God, as the owner, is going to personally partake in this process. Notice what he says. He says, I will remove its hedge. I will break down its wall. I will make it a waste. I will command the clouds that they will not rain upon it. I will. I will. I will. God is intimately involved in the destruction that will take place. And again, remember, God is justified in this action. He did everything right. Yet the vineyard, Judah, failed to produce. And indeed, they did face this righteous judgment in 586 B.C. when Babylon invaded and destroyed Judah. And just as this song foretells, Judah became desolate, they lost their strength and protection, they were invaded, and they were destroyed. So we see that every aspect of this judgment that Isaiah is foreshadowing is a coming punishment that Judah experiences. And so thus, this part of the passage is also effectively serving as a warning for Judah to stop being unfaithful, to repent and turn back to God so that they can produce the fruit that he expects them to, lest they experience this coming punishment. And potentially many in Isaiah's audience might have even picked up to some degree that this was a warning, but they probably still thought, well, he's talking about Israel. And until now, Israel being the northern kingdom that was conquered, they're probably thinking, yeah, I agree with you, Isaiah. This is a warning for us, but man, look what happened to Isaiah. They, or look what happened to Israel. They got it wrong. And so when he begins verse 7 and he says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, they probably think to themselves, yep, I, I got it right. Maybe I start to feel vindicated, a false sense of security. But this is where the covert nature of the song ends. And Isaiah doesn't stop there. He says, the vineyard of the Lord of the house of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. Now, hearing this, they might have been in shock, but Isaiah skillfully presents them with the truth that they were not only guilty of being unfruitful, but they have just pronounced judgment upon themselves in their own hearts 
through the way he's pronounced the parable. Just like the prophet Nathan did with David, they have pronounced judgment upon themselves. And so that's the warning in this passage now takes it on a new level for Isaiah's audience, who now fully understand the nature of the vineyard and the judgment that lay before them is a result of their own unfruitfulness and rebellion against God. Now Isaiah's warning here also uses a clever use of the Hebrew that further highlights the nature of why Judah is guilty of being unfruitful. Now he states that God, in verse 7, looks for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, we miss out on this in the English translation, but it's really magnificent wordplay when you consider the technique of what Isaiah is doing here in the original language, because the words here, they sound like each other in Hebrew. He's using assonance. So first, the English word for justice, in which the Hebrew word is mispat, which means looked for justice, the righting of wrongs, that's what God wanted. But what he received instead was the similar-sounding word of mispak. And now this word means bloodshed, the inflicting of wrongs. He wanted the righting of wrongs, but he got the inflicting of wrongs. He wanted mispat, but he got mispak. Similarly, God expected Judah to bear the fruits of sadak, a Hebrew word for righteousness and right relationships. But instead, he was given sa'ak, which again sounds and looks the same, but it means outcry, wrong relationships. So what does this wordplay mean? It means that at least on the surface, these worthless grapes, these sour, bitter stinkers, looked like the real deal. They had some appearance to the good grapes, but in actuality, they were imposters. And so Isaiah is saying to the nation of Israel, to Judah, you may seem like you think you're the people of God. You may seem like you're honoring God in your appearance, maybe even your actions. Yes, you have the law, you have the temple, you have the history, you have the promises, the priests, and the sacrifices. You have the land and the blessings, but that's not what makes you obedient. That's not what allows you to do the fruits of the Spirit, to do the fruit that God wants you to do. They weren't, because in truth, they were imposters. They were the worthless grapes. Because it doesn't matter if you just try to look the part. It doesn't matter if you do a lot of quote-unquote good things. I mean, doing good things are great, but they don't make you a child of God. You don't just fake it. I mean, the the saying, fake it until you make it, it doesn't work with the Lord God Almighty. He can see right through our attempts to fake it. And so here, for the nation of kingdom of Israel and Judah, God saw through their outer appearance, their fakeness for what they really were, the stinking, disappointing, worthless grapes. And so one key to applying this passage to us today is a question, again, posed in verse 4. Why did this happen? Why did this vineyard fail to produce fruit? What led this vineyard, which had such a promising start, end up failing to produce? Well, the answer is unfaithfulness, which leads to rebellion, which results in rejecting God and what he has done for us. And again, church, the scary part is that can be a slow process. And if you're not careful, you don't even know what's happening. You can be like that frog in the pot. Because you see, Judah had no excuse. God literally set them up perfectly. He did everything for them. He chose them, built them into a nation, liberated them from slavery, provided them for them in the desert, presented them with the land, removed their enemies, gave them the law, the promises. He gave them success in every area, militarily, economically, theologically. He literally blessed them with his presence. Yet despite all that, they eventually failed to produce his fruit. Why? Because they became unfaithful. They disobeyed God. They didn't destroy all of what they were supposed to. They adopted the pagan ways of those they conquered. They defiled the temple. They brought false altars and idols into the pagan gods, whom they worshipped alongside the one true God. 
They abandoned the law and were unfaithful. But you know what else? You know what the exciting part is? Is that we have no excuse not to produce fruits either. Why? Because the fruits of the Spirit are always the indicator of salvation. So why is that exciting? Because God has already done everything for us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. He has prepared and enabled us perfectly. And this passage beautifully illustrates the amount of work that God has done to enable us to fulfill the purpose he has for us in our lives. From the beginning all the way back to Eden, God has perfectly and completely provided for us. He gives us everything we need to produce for him. He gives us life. He gives us his word. He gave us his son. He gave us forgiveness. He gave us eternal life. And if that isn't enough, remember, Scripture declares this. In John 15, 16, Christ says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And Scripture is clear that the only way we can even produce fruit for God in the first place is because God enables us to do so. John 15, 5 tells us where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're expected to produce fruit for the Lord because it shows that we're saved. And conversely, those who do not bear fruit according to Christ in Matthew 7, 19, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So you see, we're expected to produce fruits because we are saved. Remember, we're not saved because of what we do. We're not saved because of our works. You can't try hard enough. But rather, we're saved because of the grace of God. And once we are saved, once we've been transformed through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are expected and will demonstrate that in our lives. Because again, if God is working through us and is perfectly providing everything for us, how can we fail? We only fail when we reject him. If we insist on doing things on our terms, our way. I mean, look at the history of creation. God created a perfect paradise for Adam and Eve. And what did they do? They rejected it. The Hebrews were delivered from slavery, and they were given the promised land, and God rejected them. I'm sorry, and they rejected God. After they established the kingdom and were the most powerful nation on earth, they rejected God. When Christ came, what did the Hebrews do? They crucified him. I mean, look at us today, church. As a nation, America does not have a covenant with God. But nevertheless, we were founded largely on principles that honored Christ and Christianity. And God has blessed this nation. We've been prosperous. But what has happened? America has rejected God. And rejection always leads to bad fruits. And these things start slow, but it's a slow creep. But sometimes you don't even see them coming. But look at the slow creep in our civilization. A hundred years ago, the divorce rate was about 1%. 1%. Today, conservatively, statistics tell us it's about 40 to 50%. In the 1930s, Howard Hughes, the aviator and movie producer, made a movie called The Outlaw that was actually banned for a long time because it had a scene that had cleavage. I'm not even going to mention the amount of filth that's in the movies and TVs that's out there today. We all know it. Think about the schools. A hundred years ago, most schools across America were biblically based. They would, they would begin with prayer. Most schools taught, Bible, taught the Bible. Noah Webster, who was called the father of American scholarship and, and the author of the 1828 Merriam-Webster Dictionary. If you read that great dictionary, every single word has a definition that explains its meaning with a scripture from the Bible. Christ was at the foundation of American education, but today we actually have teachers who've been sued for mentioning Christ and Christianity in the classroom. It's happened. How does it happen? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow creep. 
but it's the result of a nation that has abandoned God. It happens slowly, but know this. When you abandon God, you produce vile fruit, worthless fruit, and there's no excuse. And this is the pattern of humanity. It's unfaithfulness that leads to rebellion that is manifested in the rejection of God. And again, we see this pattern occurring in our very nation. Now, here's another thing. This passage, this is about Judah. It's not about America, but I will pose this question. If God punished his chosen people, who he had a promise to redeem and will redeem, the people of Judah and Israel, for their unfaithfulness, do you think he would spare the same judgment for any other nation? I'll tell you right now, the answer is no. And so in light of this truth, this warning, we must remember that God expects us, his people, to produce fruit because he has provided us to do so in the first place. So if we fail, we need to examine ourselves and ask the hard question, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to transform your life so you can produce the fruits of the Spirit? Or are you holding on to your own sour grapes, your old wild fruit, living in rejection and unfaithfulness? So as we close tonight, I want you to remember a passage from Matthew 21, starting in 18, where Christ, when he's on a walk, he becomes hungry, and he comes upon a fig tree, and he decides to walk over there and pluck some fruit to eat. And when he arrives at the tree, he finds that there's no fruit on the tree. Remember what he says? He curses the tree, and he says, may you never bear fruit again. And that tree withers and dies. Why did that happen? The same reason we've been discussing tonight. Christ expected the tree to bear fruit, but instead it did not. All the poor were leaved. What does this mean for us? Well, again, church, good fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, is the evidence of our salvation. Do we need fruit to avoid punishment and to be saved? No. We're not saved because of our works. We're saved because of Christ the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Scripture is clear that Christ alone saves. No amount of work or effort on our part is going to lead to any degree of salvation. So then you ask, well, what's the point of producing fruit then if we don't need it to be saved? Well, if we're truly abiding in Christ, the evidence of Christ within us is going to manifest itself. It's going to overflow by producing, producing fruits in our lives. And we've been commanded and commissioned by Christ to do so. And so we can place our hope in that. That's an eternal hope. And it, because we have eternal salvation, that even in the midst of a fallen world, in a world that is facing judgment, we can still approach God and take comfort in our salvation and proclaim the truth, moreover, of the gospel in the midst of this judgment in the hope that more people will come to know Christ because of our witness. And this brings glory to God. The Bible tells us that when we bear much fruit and prove to be Christ's disciples, we bring glory to God. So how do we do this? Embrace Christ. Embrace the gospel. Embrace evangelism. Bear the fruits that God has expected us to and enabled us to do. The church should be an influence for the world, not the other way around. Submit to Christ. Submit to him and allow him to use you to joyfully produce fruit for him as we have been enabled to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that at the beginning of all creation, you had a plan for us. And it wasn't just a good plan, it was the perfect plan. And you've executed that plan perfectly from the beginning until now and through all eternity. So Lord, help us to hold on to that truth, to take comfort in it and to proclaim it around the world. That even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of a world full of sin, that there is a way to be saved. There's a way to have eternal life and that's through your son, Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your salvation. Help us to go forth and produce the fruits of the Spirit that you've enabled us to do. For your glory we pray. Amen.